man has always been a venal animal. The growth of populations, the huge costs of war, the incessant pressure of confiscatory taxation, all these things make him more and more venal. The average man is tired and scared, and a tired and scared man can't afford ideals. He has to buy food for his family. In our time, we have seen a shocking decline in both public and private morals. You can't expect quality from people whose lives are a subjugation to a lack of quality. You can't have quality with mass production. You don't want it because it lasts too long. So you substitute styling, which is commercial swindle intended to produce artificial obsolescence. Mass production couldn't sell goods next year unless it made what it sold this year look unfashionable a year from now. We have the whitest kitchens and the most shining bathrooms in the world. But in the lovely white kitchen, the average person can't produce a meal fit to eat. And the lovely shining bathroom is mostly a receptacle for deodorants, laxatives, sleeping pills, and the products of that confidence racket called the cosmetic industry. You make the finest packages in the world, Mr. Marlowe. The stuff inside is mostly junk. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Lit to Lens podcast, a safe place for folks who like the movie more than the book. We are recording this episode on Saturday, August 16th. Welcome to episode number 73, uh, where we will be discussing the adaptation, The Long Goodbye. I'm your host, Will, and with me to talk things over is the gimlet-drinking, hippie-loving, and hard-boiled man himself, Mr. Eric. Say hello to the people eat. Hello, everyone. Um, Will... I've noticed here, August 16th, it's actually September 16th. I think you've had too many gimlets. Oh, God. <laughs> too many gimlets this morning. Uh, but, you know, that's it. Yeah. Um, the Long Goodbye. It's a, mm-hmm. a story about, you know, the, the long, painful process of of losing somebody. Yeah. You know? That's why they call it The Long Goodbye. Yeah. That's true. Um, In a way, right? Yeah. It was it was funny. I was uh, a bit hungover this morning and watching him drink gimlets made me upset physically mm. um but still enjoyed it nonetheless were you drinking gimlets yesterday is that no hard? i've actually i've never had a gim i'm not even sure what is in a gimlet uh it's a, okay i can tell you it's Thank gin you. lime juice and simple syrup well I had a negroni which has gin in it hmm. so you're a third of the way there <laughs> i think that's what put me over the edge last night yeah gin so. like after midnight is probably not good but here you are. You're, I made it. You're alive. <laughs> Barely. We didn't have to give say the long <laughs> goodbye for you. I forgot what date it was, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, fast facts. So the book uh, written by Raymond Chandler, uh, who is also, also the author of The Big Sleep, Farewell, My Lovely, and The Lady in the Lake. Uh, this book uh, was published in 1953, considered one of the classics of hard-boiled detective novels. Um, it has a Goodreads rating of 4.19. Uh, the movie was uh, released in March 1973, so 20 years later, and it stars Elliot Gould, Nina Van Plant, and Serling Hayden. Um, so directed by Robert Altman, um, director of MASH, The Player, Nashville, among many others. Um, and the screenplay was by Lee Brackett. The film has a Rotten Tomato score of 95% and a Metacritic score of 87, so pretty damn good on all accounts. A banger. Yeah. So, um, Eric, can you give us a quick recap? Yes, I can. The Long Goodbye tells the story of Philip Marlowe, a private detective living in Los Angeles who is pulled into a mystery. 
and both his friend Terry Lennox and his wife turn up dead, the latter by a murder and the former by suicide. Or were they? While Marlowe investigates the deaths, he is pulled deeper and deeper into the lives of the Lennox's neighbors, the famous author Roger Wade and his wife, and the police. Mm. Um, themes of societal rot, uh, vigilante justice, mm-hmm. and uh, alcoholism, I would say, feature prominently. Definitely. And also heavy smoking. Um, and heavy smoking. So, awesome. Cool. Thank you for the recap. Um, we're going to get right into it. Let's play our favorite game, Two Truths, One Lie. Um, Eric, I think, lost last game, but I think... I'm, I, I, I th- guarantee victory. I I think, I'm, I'm looking at these, and I know the answer. I like your confidence. I'm feeling good that you're feeling good. Yes. Number one, the author, Raymond Chandler, based two characters partly on himself, um, the characters of Roger Wade and Terry Lennox. So that's number one. Uh, number two, the actor, Elliot Gould, um, was once married to pop singer Madonna. Um, and then number three, Paul Thomas Anderson um, dedicated his film There Will Be Blood to Robert Altman, the director of this film. Eric. So the, these are good questions. Uh, unfortunately... They're not questions or statements. These are good statements. Thank you. Unfortunately, I, I know the answer only because while watching the movie, I was like, what has Elliot Gould done You know, besides this? So I was on his Wikipedia page. And I know he was not married to the pop singer Madonna. He was married to a different pop singer. Um, and her name is Barbara Streisand. Yes, it is. So that's the lie there. Uh, the other truths are, are interesting. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I did read that this was Raymond Chandler's most autobiographical novel because he wrote it while his wife was dying. Mm-hmm. Her long goodbye, I suppose, yes. if you want to read into that. And then uh, I like the little PTA thing here, dedicated his film, There Will Be Blood to Robert Altman. Because there is a bit of a and maybe we'll get into this later connection point between PTA or between this film and another PTA movie oh. that actually is a former little lens joint. So, uh, stay tuned. Oh, I think I know where you're stay going tuned to find I out. like that. Um, so there you go. Finally a, a win for me. <laughs> I'm going to mark it right here. here. Here's a W for Eric. Um, okay, cool. Congratulations. You know, you, you know, mash out of the park, but it was pretty easy. So Thank you. there you go. Yeah. Elliot Gould's not in a, I mean, I guess he is in a ton of stuff because he was in a, a movie from 1969 that was well-liked. Uh, the name escapes me. But he kind of mm-hmm. got like a bad rap and I don't think worked again really until oh, really? this movie came out. And then famously is Monica's dad and friends and then yeah. uh, is in all those Ocean's 11, 12, yeah, 13 movies. Yeah. That's kind of where I know him, but that's like mm-hmm. way old. Yeah, yeah. old. Yeah. It's funny to think about that. Like, because I, I knew he was in the Ocean's and I was like, oh, because that's how I know him as well. It's funny to think about how like our generation of actors will sort of become like this guy. Like, you know, they'll have like bit parts in like big movies with like the newer actors. Yeah. And like, that's how that net generation will know them. Like, I wonder what, like, I don't know, Leo will be doing. I guess it's gotta be somebody like less, less famous. I guess. Yeah. Um, like, um, maybe like a Mark Ruffalo or I was like a Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's no good comparison. Also, we forgot to mention, well, maybe we'll talk about this later. Uh, this film has a quite spectacular cameo. You don't remember? Who is it? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's not really a cameo, though, because he's not like playing himself. Is that what a cameo? Is that the definition yeah. of a cameo? Yeah. So if like, if he came on and was like, I I'm, guess, yeah. 
I'm professional bodybuilder Arnold Schwarzenegger. I guess yeah. He's playing well, a he, character. He might have been. He was in character was as he? a buff guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then he like pulled his pants like not all the way down, like yeah. halfway down his thighs. Right. And, and he you could stopped. see his junk. Yeah. I don't think he could fit them all the way down. His like thighs are too big. That's true. Once the pants go on, they stay on until they have to go he all looked, the way off. He was shredded. Well, I think this is like peak. Uh, yeah, peak Arnold. Yeah. That's pretty good. Yeah, but no no talking. He just kind of is there to get undressed. Because the camera like looks directly at him. I don't know if you remember the shot. but It's like, almost distracting. He's in the middle of the shot. Yeah. Like Elliot Gould is on the left and then the that gangster guy is on the right. Yeah. Or, you know, the rule of thirds, right? So one third is yeah. Gould, one third is the gangster. And then Arnold is like 50% dead center. Yeah. And the camera is just staring at him. He's his, so like, big. Giant pecs. <laughs> and it's funny because I know no one understands what we're talking about. But the guy is like, everyone get naked. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. Arnold is like the first person who's like, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. Sounds good. Definitely will get naked. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I saw him. I was like, oh my God. I forgot he was like this. That's what you look like, right? If you were to Well, I mean, I don't want to brag, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, let's do over under. This is another one of our favorites here at Little Lens. The number is 3.5. And the subject is the number of marriages Robert Altman, the director of the film, has had. Eric. Well, I do you I, anything about him. I know that he is famously like a an asshole and also a kind of a drunk. So ba- based on that, I'm going to go ahead and take the over. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about his marriages or anything like that, but just given the the general vibe he puts out, I'm going to take the over. But I I don't know. Maybe he had one wife the whole time and she's uh really living a life. Yeah. <laughs> um are you taking the over? I'm taking the over. It's under. It's 3. Oh. But yeah, at three. So. Congratulations. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I didn't know anything about Robert Altman before this, um, and that kind of stuck out to me. And I thought Eric probably knows something because we have a separate uh, movie club, and Eric brought the player to movie club, um, and that was the first time I was ever introduced to Robert Altman. But I feel like you probably have more information. He likes to talk, so if you read some of the like history books about this time period he's often quoted him and like warren Beatty love to talk about the 70s really and like what was going on so he's he he's around gotcha he's not afraid to give his side of the story as he should well someone's got to do it you know, otherwise yeah. history's lost right that's true that's a fair point um cool congratulations uh you're one for one today uh but the big, big win for two truths one lie we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. This episode of the Little Lens podcast is brought to you by Marlboro Reds. If you're someone like me who loves the sweet, sweet taste of nicotine from sunup to sundown, Marlboro Reds is the go-to cigarette when the craving hits. Made with the finest dried Virginia tobacco, Marlboro Reds get the job done and your lady will love the way you smell. Marlboro Reds. You can't smoke all day if you don't start in the morning. And we are back. Thank you from that brief word from our sponsor, Marlboro Reds. Smoke them. You know, it's funny. Typically, you're not allowed to advertise cigarettes. We kind of are on the other pressure. Like, you know what? If you have money, we'll take it. Listen, and, uh, we'll put your message on the air. It doesn't really matter. You can't I mean, harm kids. Yeah. I mean, the kids are juuling. Why, why not just let them smoke? It's tobacco is a natural plant, right? It's, it is it, vegan. So. Is it actually vegan? Well, I guess the wrappings, I, I don't know. Yeah. But like, a, you know, tobacco would be vegan. I guess, yeah. Just a plant. Listen, I think we need to bring smoking back. Have you, you're not on TikTok, but there, mm-hmm. have you seen the, this guy like rebrands unhealthy foods in healthy ways? So he'll like come on oh. and do like 
coca-cola and he'll put forth like new packaging that's like vegetarian like good source of energy etc cetera, etc cetera, just yeah, try yeah, to sell yeah. like nerds that's or whatever. funny that's actually pretty clever so i wonder if he could do that for cigarettes oh he probably definitely could. kind of interesting like relaxes you yeah a natural relaxant yeah <laughs> vegan <laughs> you have to organic send you have or- to send me those tiktok videos yeah send them to the to lens tiktok because i do pop on there every once in a while when people send me links to TikTok, which is incredibly annoying. I do that a lot. Yeah, I thought you do that. Doesn't it open But other TikTok? friends do that? It, it does. Yeah. Which is like the only time I really use it. Oh, I see. So you can just you can just message me. You can just message the Little Lens account, right? I see. Okay. Okay. Back channel. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't fucking forget. Like, so. Anyway, what are we talking about now? <laughs> we are talking about the book. Um, so... We are going to get into one of our favorite segments here um, called Pitch Me Daddy. So I am the studio executive. Eric is the the pitcher, as he usually is. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> is that a Jim Bowden reference? <laughs> it might be. Um, and Eric is going to try to pitch me, um, sell, me this, sell me this film, or sell me this book, excuse me, to make into a film. Uh, and then we'll get into all that. So Eric... Why adapt something like this into a film? Well, this is one of the definitive American detective novels. Do you like a gumshoe? Do you like dames in distress? Do you like twists? Do you like societal rot and one man's quest to fix it? Do you like gimlets? Well, this book is for you. It's vibey. It has probably an all-time... Uh, main character I think the other comp would probably be like Dashiell Hammett's Sam Spade novels Mm -hmm. this is the other and like Edgar Allan Poe but I think he has different protagonists in each of his stories Um, but as far as like American detective novels so excluding Sherlock Holmes this is probably the guy this is probably the biggest character Um, Philip Marlowe he's somebody who exudes confidence who speaks with a smart mouth and a smarter brain Um, he has great lines like the French have a phrase for it, a phrase for it. These bastards have a phrase for everything, and they're always right. To say goodbye is to die a little. So I think if you if you look at this book, if you look at the the whole oeuvre of Raymond Chandler, um, what you really want is Marlowe. He's such a clear character. He has a moral code, of course, intelligence, a curiosity. I think you need all those things in a detective. He speaks in a very unique way, um, and you. As a Murakami head, I think this is one of the things, this is why we did this mm-hmm. episode was because Murakami cites him as a reference. I think you can kind of see the through line between the way he speaks and the way a lot yeah. of Murakami characters speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's pretty compelling. So I, I think you could very easily build a story and a world around him just figuring stuff out. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a great character. Um, well, actually, sorry. I'm, I still have to have my studio executive hat on. Oh. Um, how much money would you like? Well, we got Elliot Gould, so he's pretty cheap. Okay. So we'll <laughs> take perfect. whatever we'll take whatever you have. <laughs> perfect. Um but yeah, what I was gonna say is that the character is really great. I was gonna um I think I m- may have mentioned this to you off air, but like I feel like everybody in this in the book hates each other and they're all just like giving each other zingers or just being assholes to each other. Yes. Um and it's great dialogue it's great like entertainment um and he's such a like a prickly guy but he's obviously smart and edgy so he can like you know come back with quick one-liners and um 
it just like it just makes for a great entertaining read that's not too like um what's the word like um not too serious i guess mm-hmm. um although it is a serious story um and it just like keeps you going like there are there are times where it breaks with um how the story plays out and the different mysteries involved um but just like having a character who's just going to get you through is just it's such a like an easier way to get through a book yeah he's very fun to follow and i think a, a lot of these types of stories you're just sort of following the main character he's the cipher for the audience he's the one who learns things and like introduces new information to you the reader to be like oh shit this mm-hmm. is happening that's happening yeah. um and you definitely need to follow somebody who is compelling and who mixes it up a little bit yeah. because without the person who mixes it up like you might not find the information so yeah. you sort of need a person who's going to insert himself sort of like vigilante style but without the maybe like violence that that word carries with it mm-hmm. you know um i think we can talk about this in a second but it's kind of interesting where this movie fits between like some other famous detective movies mm. Cause it's 1973 famous one in 1974. There's a, a famous mm-hmm. series that starts in 1971, v- like different vibes. And this is kind of like in the middle of like a modern, but not like super violent, but uh, compelling also. Are you talking about Chinatown? Yeah. So Chinatown is 74, but that's a period piece. Cause that's, that's set in the thirties. That's, right. that's right. And then I, I think it's 71 is dirty Harry. And that's Clint uh, Eastwood as like a, I'm going to shoot him up. Yeah. My own brain of justice. Yeah, that's right. But he's technically a cop. So I guess he's, but he's kind of like a loose cannon cop who doesn't play by the rules. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, like, you got to get the job done. It's always like, we'll kick you off the force if you do this again. <laughs> don't st- don't put a toe out of line. And he's like, I got to get these guys. <laughs> that's a pretty good impression. He should have, you know what? What's kind of uh, unfortunate is that Clint Eastwood should have been Batman. If they had made Batman movies back then, like, I mean, it's perfect. Yeah, I guess I just didn't. Like, they made it in, like, the 40s or, f- or 50s, maybe. And then they didn't come back until, like, the 90s. Yeah, late 80s. And he's, like, too old at that point. Yeah. They should have him as, like, an old Batman. <sighs> yeah. Robin, get off my lawn. <laughs> anyway. is he still, He's still alive, right? He's still alive. Yeah, he's he was he directed a movie, like, two years ago. Oh, did they? Cry Macho. I missed that one. Well, it's on Sam. Max. It's streaming on Max. <laughs> I'll check it out. Yeah. Um, so, Eric, what which parts of the book were you excited to see adapted? Um, I, I think for me, one of the the joys of a detective novel is the sell. Like, does the whodunit hit? You know, is there adequate connection to make the reveal work at the end? Are there enough hints or red herrings along the ride that divert your attention or lead you down like various paths to say like, Oh, well, I guess it could be this person. It could be that person. You don't quite know what happens, but you're compelled by the mystery of it. Um, I think that obviously ties to plot, but I think it's also independent. Like, do you, does the mystery work? Does it hold you? Are there enough characters in there that are like conceivably the murderers but also conceivably not mm-hmm. like yeah. the mechanics of it are what's interesting to me more mm-hmm. so than like this is set in malibu with like a famous hemingway-esque writer mm-hmm. involved and yada yada yeah uh what about you um uh, for me it was a character for sure and i think what you said kind of made me think a little bit because it really was one of those 
detective novels that like like sometimes you can in movies or in books you can kind of see where it's going and that like was not the case in this like i feel like they had not you know too many twists but they had a lot of twists Mm -hmm. um and turns that just like were completely unexpected or it's like completely new information it takes a story in a completely different direction that like nobody would be able to just guess um which was kind of refreshing um but so that part that aspect as well as the the i I wanted to see the banter i wanted to see if they could like if they did that or not and like how how good it was and it was good um thankfully but totally different banter but yeah yeah definitely good um and then yeah i was i i don't think i paid attention to this 50s 70s thing as much but i obviously noticed it like while watching um but um but yeah that's probably it yeah i, I think marlo is a, is a good pick because we just talked him up and so seeing yeah. seeing the real life marlo i guess it's one of those characters that's like you know we talked about like and this person's playing Macbeth, and this person's yeah. playing this famous like this person's playing sherlock holmes yeah. tune in or whatever yeah. There is something about that that's like, what's the take on this like famous person yeah. that you, we all kind of have a relationship with? Yeah, that's true. We, I, I, f- I feel like I've, I've definitely heard the name Philip Marlowe before, um, but didn't realize it was like a Raven Chandler thing. Mm. Um, but that's true. I, I feel like we haven't really done any detective novels so. like this, right? Yeah. Um, so this one definitely stands out as like pretty unique. Um. And it's cool. It was a cool, you know, after seeing the player recently with you, I was interested to see like what the vibe was going to be like. And like the way that he shot the player, obviously it became after, after this film, but um, he had just like captured Los Angeles in a really unique way mm-hmm. with the player. So I was like interested in like seeing if that could sort of translate here as well. Um and we'll i'm sure we'll get into it but um yeah like 20 years before the player here's like yeah. the other la movie he did yeah or one of them yeah um and did you like reading it uh so well so i've read it twice now and i guess well, i read it once and then i listened unknowingly to an abridged version of the audiobook which was great and a good job by yeah. me read by <laughs> elliot gould really actually really compelling mm-hmm. um when i read it last year i looked at my good read i gave it three stars and I think there is, so, I mean, like the, the banter is great. There's a lot of good writing. Um, I think there, there is something that can be like a little one note about it. Uh, mm. the story, like it's, it, it can be a little flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe that's just like reading with uh, reading, like ratatat banter like that. You tend to just like gloss over it really fast yeah. while appreciating it. It just becomes sort of like a, a flat. There's like a, You've interacted a flattening with it out before, of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there's also, which is, I think something we'll talk about later, kind of like a naughtiness to the plot, like K N O T T naughtiness. Oh, nice. nice. Um, like there's a bunch of characters, a lot of loose ends and it, it kind of does work. Uh, and then there's also an element of like, okay, so so this person is another person who had a relationship with this person and that person has a relationship with that person. Uh, and like, how does, how is he fit in with this like whole crew? I, I like mm-hmm. part of it is like a, it, it is, it is a, a bit tangled. Yeah. And I think that's part of like the, the joy of it, but it's also one of the, one of the things to like parse. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the efforts here is to, to yeah. 
pull it apart. Yeah. Um, I did. I wrote down some lines, if I may. Oh, please. Uh, he was a guy who talked with commas, like a heavy novel. Yes, that was. I remember that actually. The tragedy of life, Howard, is not that the beautiful die young, but that they grow old and mean. It will not happen to me. <laughs> there was a sad fellow over on a bar stool talking to the bartender who was polishing a glass and listening with that plastic smile people wear when they are trying not to scream <laughs> like that. And so, I mean, it's just, it's, it's like tougher, hard boiled language. Yeah. I feel like it's very atmospheric and very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it does a good job giving you a sense of like the characters yeah. vibe. Yeah. Like, like it plays into the, like what the character is really thinking. Um, yeah. Like, you know, beyond the surface. Yeah. And I, I do like the dialogue a lot. Cause it's not like, me asking you a question and you saying like yes thinking about it answers it's like a question gets asked and then the answer like really pushes things forward there's no there's no like stopping to sort of recognize what's happening it's just like a we're gonna this is like warp speed shit i already know um and i'm moving on yeah which is i think is difficult but also like when well done is well done yeah what about you no, I agree. Um, it's funny you mentioned that one quote. Uh, that one really stuck out to me. The first, I think, the first or second one you read. The commas. Yeah, the commas, like a like a heavy novel. Yeah, like that's pretty good. Um, <clears throat> yeah, he had a he had a like a a decent amount of those like one liners that were um, just not obviously not memorable because I don't remember them off the top of my head. But like, I enjoyed them. I guess. Um, yeah no i i really enjoyed it i i did the i read the first 160 70 60 pages and then i was running out of time so i cranked out the audiobook started packing which is like having that in the background um and it's funny because like i usually cannot do audiobooks mm-hmm. but i was able to i was able to do this one pretty well um i think i just get distracted easily especially because usually I, i'll have headphones on to like have music in the background while I'm focused on something. But as opposed to like actually focusing what I'm on, what I'm listening to and then ha- having my stuff that I'm doing in real life be the background. It's sort of an interesting, weird experience, but um, yeah, I'm usually anti audiobook, but I did it. Yeah. Don't tell my mom. Well, she's listening. She's going to write it. What? Yeah. I, I remember we talked about this when we talked about women talking because I mm. listened to the audiobook of that and that was really difficult to follow. Yeah. Some, something about, have, for me, because I listened to Elliot Gould do it, having a professional actor read it. It's like, mm. oh, this is really compelling. Yeah. This is really good. Yeah, because, you know, they're good at what they do. Yeah. Yeah, the one... It's like, all right. Yeah, I'm I'm now with SAG. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't yeah. I was on the fence and then I was like, you know what? That's pretty good. I wonder why like Amazon can't get like LA Gould to do it. Cause it was some, I don't know who it was, but it wasn't him. I don't think like, why can't Amazon just pay for LA Gould? Maybe they're cheap. Or maybe he didn't want to do the full version. They only want to do the He's busy. Bridge. Yeah. He's a little busy. <laughs> yeah. It was from 2005. So I think that's like post friends and oh yeah. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, he's busy. He's probably busy. Yeah. Cool. Um, anything else you want to mention about the book before we head to break? No, I would definitely read another one of these, though. Yeah, for sure. That's how I feel. Big Sleep is interesting. Uh, you mentioned that Big Sleep was Humphrey Bogart. Mm. Bogie um, and McCall, baby. Which might be cool. Which might be cool. Um, are we allowed to watch movies on this podcast that are in black and white? I mean, I'll make an exception. 
It's also from the forties, so that it's. I, yeah, yeah. Do you, is this the oldest movie that we've done on this podcast, or have we gone? Older? Um, you need to do like an account. This is seventy one. Seventy three. When was Solaris? So oh, maybe. that's a good question. But yeah, yeah, I think we've. I don't think we've done anything really much older than this. I've become a little bit more receptive to black and white. Solaris Not is nineteen seventy two. So that's oh wow okay so by this is the year. oldest yeah okay oh that's the oldest by year you're right seventy two yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Well, maybe we can do it so we got to go back in time baby we'll table it okay. yeah. <laughs> um well cool so that wraps up our uh, discussion on the book and we're gonna take a quick break um and we'll be right back I want you to take off your clothes. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I have absolutely nothing to hide either, but I'm not going to take my clothes off. I want you to get naked so you can tell me the truth about my money. You want to take your clothes off? Would you like me to take off my clothes? It's okay with Why, me. Why, it's a pleasure. As a matter of fact, everybody. Harry, everybody Wait take off minute, your clothes. Marty. I don't want to take off my clothes. I have too many scars. I understand. Go on inside, Peppy. Go on inside and take care of the telephone. In the meantime, everybody takes off their clothes. Harry, take off your clothes. Take them off. George Raft never took his clothes off. Help him take off his clothes, will you? No, no, wait, wait. One second, one second. I don't need any help. Joanne, just a second. I want you to wait right here. I'd like you to see what goes on after all. This is what I owe you. I owe this much to you. And I understand you, you're nervous. Well, I'm not nervous. Yes, you are. You're nervous like I was when I was a kid. I was in high school. I used to dread gym class. Absolutely dread it. Well, you know why? No, no. Because I didn't have any pubic hair until I was 15 years old. Oh, yeah, you must have looked like one of the three little pigs. Hey, funny, Marlon. No, 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 no. Take it I'm easy. No joke, see, but... look, it's very simple. The man is nervous. Just a minute. Look at this. What's that? A picture of James Madison. It's a $5,000 bill. I know. See that? You take off your clothes, everything comes out honest. You know how many of these there are in this country? A couple. Very few. And three of them were in the suitcase that Terry Lennox was supposed to take for me to Mexico. Where did you get this? Box of Cracker Jacks came as a Bullshit, Cracker Jacks. Where did you get it? Well, I tell you. <laughs> Where did you a, get it? A client said A client is bullshit. Are you laughing at me? Yes, you are. You're laughing. Well, I, I see you're laughing. And I wouldn't laugh if I were you. I'm not laughing. Is Terry Lennox alive? Are you making... Did you have a deal with Terry Lennox? Well, Do you think it's funny? No, funny no, no, to steal $355,000 from Marty Augustine? Jack, let me see that knife. Oh, with pleasure, Marty. Give it to me. Harry? Your father was a moil. Cut him. What? Cut him. Where? Cut it off. And we are back. Thank you uh, for sticking with us here. Um, so before we get into the adaptation itself, um, we have one of our favorite segments here. Eric is going to learn you something. Eric, take it away. Yes. T- today, Will, we're going a bit niche rather than uh, dig into the stylings of Robert Altman or the many appearances of, of Philip Marlowe across uh, literature and film, we're going to talk about something that I never had the chance to Google before until I, until we created this segment on our own podcast, um, which is why are private detectives sometimes referred to as dicks, like private dicks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a thing. If you haven't heard of this, Google it. It's a real thing. People call them dicks. Anyway, <laughs> uh, there are three main theories as to why this is a, a thing. One um, and afterwards, we can we can vote on which we think is the most realistic. Mm-hmm. One, Dick is just a strange, shortened version, shortened version of the word detective, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Two, the word Dick came from the Romanian word 
dick, D-I-K, which means to see or to watch. This term was often used in the late 1800s by criminals who believed they were being watched carefully by law enforcement or government security agencies. Mm -hmm. Three, um, and this is the one that's given the most credence, the name was based on a legendary fictional Scottish detective named Dick Donovan, who was the central figure in numerous investigation mystery novels in the late 1800s, which is when Private Dick uh, gained like some relevance as a term. Mm -hmm. Dick basically becoming the genericization of detective. Interesting. I have to look up that term. Genericization is like when you call a tissue a Kleenex, where it, it just uh, becomes like the brand name becomes the sort of like word for the thing. Interesting. That's like the ultimate goal of all like marketing yeah. agencies. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. So if, like Google it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, f Like Facebook me. Yeah. Yeah. In the parlance of another Little Ends episode. Check it out. Um, so which one, which one do you like here? Which one is your like, I feel like the the third one makes a lot of sense where it's like, you know, this like, but it like, like Holmesian, you know, became a thing where Sherlock mm -hmm. Holmes, mm -hmm. um, as an adjective. So I feel like Dick Donovan can make sense. Yeah. What a name. Uh, but I, I do like, I don't like Dick as a shortened version of the word detective. Like that doesn't make sense to me. Dick. De yeah. Dick. No. Detective. No. Unless like, like somebody didn't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe that was like slang back in the day, but I actually kind of like number two um, from the Romanian word dick, which meant means to see or to watch. Um, and the term was often used in the late history by criminals who believed they were being watched by the law enforcement. So that one actually, I bet you that is like where it originated. And then like the third one made it popular. Mm. So it was a kind of maybe like a mesh of the two. Yeah. I could see that. I buy that. Yeah anyway there's a cool there's something interesting for you i wonder if they still call them each other dicks or if it's like a new term no i mean it, it was popularized in the late 1800s that's why both of these are like term was used in the late 1800s dick donovan late 1800s right but like if if detectives nowadays still call each other dicks yeah. are there private detectives anymore i guess there are there must be right yeah yeah probably i guess you just like rich people hire them to spy on their family members yeah probably right <laughs> like succession that's what i've done for you have you yeah fuck watch out when you roll out of here <laughs> oh god um cool thank you eric for learning us something about dicks you're welcome i appreciate it um okie dokie it's also kind of a personality type for these like detectives too you know Prickly. yeah they, that's true they kind of have to be dicks so assholes there you go there you go <laughs> perfect thank you um okay so here we are about to talk about the adaptation uh for the long goodbye here eric how would you rate this um adaptation literal loose or reimagined it's it's been a while since maybe never since i've i've done this i'm gonna i'm gonna do it don't say it. i'm gonna say reimagine oh my god and i'm gonna do it because to quote robert altman the director I don't know if okay. you've heard of him. Yeah. He said, Chandler fans will hate my guts, but I don't give a damn about oh. this movie. So to me, that's like, I'm just going to do what I want. And it's, it is, there, there's a lot of sameness, right? Like Marlowe exists. A lot of the main characters exist. Not well, actually like the main characters kind of get halved. Um, but the characters that do exist are like the same characters from the book. But mm -hmm. I would argue that like the entire 
insides of the book has been thrown away basically some of it's been refashioned some of it has just been like straight up lost like yeah. i would say most of the dialogue is redone mm-hmm. in fact i read something on you know wikipedia uh, <laughs> so. that said um elliot gould and robert it's robert hayden the guy who plays roger wade oh i can't remember um basically ad-libbed all of their dialogue really so they just uh sterling hayden excuse me oh, sorry. um I loved all their dialogue. So that's to me is just like the hell with the book. Yeah. You guys, you guys are bringing something to this. We're going to roll with it. it. Yeah. So that's how I'm going to reimagine. I think, I think there's an argument to be had that it is sort of like in the middle of loose and reimagine, but we haven't, we haven't done a wholehearted reimagine before. So it's funny you say this because when I think of reimagined, I think, I think of an adaptation that is like totally off the walls and like totally different. Like she's the man, Amanda Bynes as like Othello from Shakespeare or something. Just like yeah, like something totally like, like not even trying to be you know what it was. Um, but I so that is a bit surprising to hear you say that. I think initially because it's still the same vibe. Um, it's still the same general and overall story. It's still a lot of the same characters. Um, why can't you let me have fun? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, keep going. And it's also, um, a lot of the same beats of the story, but I think I, I definitely see where you're saying how it's reimagined in the sense of like, they actually give a lot of these characters different motivations, um, different characteristics, different plots, different plots. So, I accept your opinion. Thank you. But I'll push back. <laughs> That's a very like therapy way of saying it. <laughs> I would probably still argue that it's loose, but I I appreciate you're taking the stand. You gotta have you gotta go there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like no one wants no one wants you to say, Oh, it's between loose and reimagine, right? That's yeah. what Stephen A. Smith does. <laughs> he he goes all the way there. No, but I think you're probably right. I think it probably is not quite reimagined, but it's certainly like I mean, it's a spectrum, right? It's yeah. definitely in the middle of loose and reimagined. Yeah. I mean, think like if we think about not to get into too many details, but like we were just watching a clip off air about uh, foreshadowing and how Roger's death is actually very dramatic and actually like great for cinema. Mm-hmm. And that is something that that's li- quite literally a reimagined scene. Yeah. So. Uh oh. <laughs> defense, Eric's defense Eric's is right. crumbling. <laughs> Eric's right. Fuck. But yeah, but the thing is, like, he dies in both. It's just like an entirely yeah. different death. So to yeah. your point, is like he still dies. Yeah. He's n- not murdered. And spoiler alert, everyone. Yeah, yeah spoilers. He's not murdered like he is in the book. Mm-hmm. But he, his death still has like similar reverberations. Yes, and yeah. is more cinematic because it's more visual. Yeah. Um. Okay. So we can we can talk about some of the differences. Yeah. Um I did want to start on like the highest wavelength of this entire thing. Mm-hmm. Um to talk about like the decision to change anything like at all. Right. You know what I mean? So to to like lean in to begin this conversation, I think what you have to ask yourself and I I'll I want I would like your opinion after, right? Mm-hmm. I talk for a second, Please. but it's, I think you have to ask yourself, what is this story about at all? 
right? So Altman called this a, quote, satire and melancholy, which I interpret as like rather than a critique of society through the lens of humor, which is like when you hear of satire, you typically mm-hmm. think it's like funny. Oh, look, like this is stupid. Ha ha. Yeah. Um, it's more of like a depressed lens. Like, can you believe this mm. is happening all around us? Yeah. Look at this. Craziness. Look at this. Right. Yeah. Um, but like, what is it critiquing? I picked our read into this episode to lead into this point specifically because what I view it as, I think, is sort of like a critique on a dying way of life. Morals are decaying. You know, mass production results in the loss of a connect, of loss of connection to like the things of life. There's just a sort of like emptiness to life, to people. Mm-hmm. And Marlowe, to me, sort of represents the good, o- good old way. Okay. He's the one carrying the flame. He's the one lighting his <laughs> the flame of, to his cigarette. He's Literally. the only one smoking in this movie. Like is everyone it? around yeah. him is is like California healthy, right? They're doing mm. yoga, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. I think his like, he represents sort of a past ethos. Um, mm. And that is true both in the book and in the movie. However, I think what you have to do is mix that in with the realities of the film's production, which is to say like, it took them 20 years to get this movie made. And in that time, very obviously America changed, right? The post-war boom of the 50s, leads into the birth and death of the hippie movement. Mm-hmm. Um, the progressive dream is born and dies. Hippies and yogis are part of the cultural fabric and then quickly get like uh, pushed aside. And even in this movie, you can see like the, the yoga girls are sort of like freaks yeah, in yeah. a way. There's sort of like a curiosity. Yeah. Um, and the, the sort of like, I have a note actually on, on here, but it's like, the California dream of the early seventies was really a sixties dream of peace, love and personal liberation. However, uh, freely those terms were defined. So I couldn't read my own hand right there. <laughs> Sorry. But the sort of idea of like sixties were a time of like free love and freedom and yeah. things were great. And then in the seventies, that stuff actively is murdered. Mm-hmm. 1972 Nixon becomes president. He wins 49 States. Like, the conservative movement wins. Ronald Reagan is governor of California from 1967 to 1975. Mm-hmm. There's like a certain thread of conservatism, like actively wins right, and right. controls California. And you think of California. It's funny because the what, two episodes ago, we did Daisy Jones, which yeah. is set almost exactly in this time in this place. Cause this movie is set in Laurel mm-hmm. Canyon yeah. in 1973. That's right. Um, but, Nixon's president, Reagan's governor. And those are like, when we think about the future world, a lot of things on TikTok, on social media, especially like you sort of look back to when Reagan became president and then you see like the exponentially growing lines or right. whatever, whatever. Yeah, so it's yeah, like, yeah. This conservative movement wins. All of a sudden the social critique that existed in 1953 when the book was written really no longer applies in 1973. That's things true. are totally different. So I think as the storyteller, director, screenwriter whatever you're faced with the decision you are making a social critique by writing this book i think it's in the book it's going to be in the movie uh do you do you aim it at the 1950s do you do chinatown and Mm. do a period piece that's 50s critiquing like post-war mass production boom and like soulless forgetting our troops or whatever whatever Mm -hmm. or do you aim it at today right when things are bad we 
talked off mic about Robert Altman like being against the Iraq war. So he's kind of a progressive guy. Mm-hmm. Do you aim it at like, there's a very real conservative movement around us. And uh, I would say that Marlowe kind of represents conservative ideals. So do you aim your viewfinder at like what's going around today? Yeah. I mean, we're still in Vietnam, right? So there's still like a yeah. lot of societal friction happening mm-hmm. around that. And then tell a story about that. Or do you look back at the fifties? So clearly they did. Yeah. They looked at the seventies, right? Yeah. Um, and I think in so doing that, you sort of have to reset everything because dynamics are different. People are different. The way the world operates is different. Yeah. You sort of have to do a big rethink. Yeah. I mean, it's a new world they're living in. It's, um, so do you buy that? I guess. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think you actually hit the nail on the head. Cause like <clears throat> you're absolutely right. It, it, it wouldn't really, it, it just wouldn't be the same movie if this was like a period piece set in the fifties and it wouldn't have the same sort of like, you know, especially at the time, probably a modern poignant view on society. Um, cause it, also, you know, they've, I'm sure the audience has seen movies like that before the period piece of the fifties or the forties and the thirties and times before that. So it's a little bit of a different view, um, on, you know, their modern time at, you know, at the time in 1973. So I actually hadn't thought of that, but I guess, yeah, it was sort of this totally different world. Um, but like, how do you, how does it change like the director's job, I guess. Like, how do they, like, what is he trying to say for the 1973 version as opposed to the 1953 version? Like, what's his message? Well, I think the message is somewhat similar in that, like, society is rotting. People are, people are not, I would, I, I would say the overall message is, like, people are not listening to you um and i i don't know if i have this marked down to talk about but like one of the marlo's like mission here is basically like i don't believe what i've been told right like i've been told that Mm -hmm. sylvia lennox has been murdered and i've been told that terry lennox killed himself in mexico after fleeing but i don't believe it but everyone else believes it the Mm -hmm. the police are like we got a confession he's dead wrap it up, yeah. put a bow on it. Right. We're good. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. Let's, it's lunch, right? Right, right, right. And he's the one who's like, this smells, I need to figure it out. Yeah. And I think you can sort of see a through line to like Vietnam smells. Yeah. We're being told this, but really it's not. Yeah. Um, but then also just like societally, there are people who believe in a certain way of life, I guess, like who have certain morals, certain ideals, and part of the read-in is like ideals are dead, but like here's a person, here's a person, Marlo, with ideals and morals, and they're very strong. And so while other people are like sort of collapsing on what they believe and how they view their like part in the world and what they owe other people, Marlo is like, no, actually, mm-hmm. what needs to happen is like an accounting of the truth. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of like a truth harbinger, and he goes to great lengths to like figure out what happened. And I think that like kind of answers your question and yeah. maybe also steps around it. But I, I think the point is like something smells and yeah. nobody gives a damn about what that is. Right. And so I'm creating a character who lives in this world, wink, wink. Right. 
who wants to figure out what the fuck is going on. Yeah. And excuse my French. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, not to change the subject here, but you mentioned um, how the uh, Soviet Linux is murdered and how it sort of, <clears throat> how the story sort of plays out from there uh, initially. In the, in the movie, um, everything is there except for Harlan Potter and this um basically this newspaper man this guy who owns whatever newspaper um national newspaper and has a lot of power and influence obviously i wanted to get your thoughts on like did you because i actually like that but maybe i like it for the wrong reasons because um you know because it, it plays into like the conspiracy aspect of like there's something bigger going on here. And that sort of like is probably a trope in detective novels. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Like, cause this one, it, it didn't like, there was no Harlan Potter. There was none of that conspiracy aspect going on in the background. It was more about like the people. Yeah. Um, who were around. Did you like have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I feel like Harlan Potter who, you said doesn't exist in the film, right? So he, he's an antagonist to my mind in the book, right? He's somebody who through his ownership of newspapers and his daughter's death is like actively working to squish either the story being reported mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Cause it would be embarrassing to him and his family and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and also like, he's trying to stop uh, Marlo from investigating. Right. So he's got some goons that live in Vegas that he sends to Marlowe to yeah. sort of like rough him up yeah, um, and to just like get him to stop doing what he's doing. So there's like a level of antagonism that is happening to actively like quell the investigation. Yeah. Um, whereas I think, which I, I think is cool and interesting. And then in the movie, they remove that. I think to say like the mystery is enough. Like he's yeah. looking to solve the case. There is like the truth and there is like the lead up to the truth. And that is enough plot for yeah. you Get through. to get through a two-hour movie that's true so i think it's a like a legitimate question do you did you think like the mystery held enough um to like make the movie compelling or did you want more mm. of like you know him turning a corner getting beat up by some thugs and then like thrown in a ravine i guess they have that though yeah they do have but that. they they kind of just like reapply yeah. that level of goony um like mobby with like who owes me money antagonism they just apply it to a different character and yeah. cut out harlan so i feel like the the filmmakers knew that they needed that level yeah. of like secondary um like, like threat yeah plot friction yeah. but it was just like harlan potter creates too much world yeah it's interesting that and, and even to think about it with chinatown because that was sort of a if I remember in the movie correctly, that was kind of a conspiracy as well, right? It was like the water was being like funneled differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, there's definitely something to that. Like there is something to having like, having an investigator, you know, investigator find out some sort of like wrongdoing going on with the powers, the higher powers that be, which is like always going to, get get your juices flowing i think as a reader or a watcher but so initially when i when i was watching them it was like oh why like where is harlan potter like why would they not have this this is such a great like part to the story but now that i'm thinking about it 
it actually it just it changes it in a, in a different way but it allows the characters to be more like personal um and have more like personal flaws as opposed to this thing you know over overshadowing or hanging above everybody else it's more about like what the characters themselves did to each other um which is different um but it's also super interesting um yeah i wonder if harlan potter didn't check off because you talked about chinatown and it's sort of like a the powers that be are diverting water in a way to like benefit themselves and so there is this conspiracy that goes high yeah really high yeah. and harlan potter while is like a fa- like rich famous newspaper man it's not it's not that really that high and what he's doing right. is not really anything that's like a Sinister. conspiracy he's yeah. just like i'm not gonna print it and yeah. i want you to stop and i'm gonna pay people to make you stop yeah that's true it's not really like he's like stopping the police or anything it's yeah. like he's just he just doesn't want the story to get out. Yeah. Um, that's that's a good point. Um, what were we talking about before this? The story, the overarching story of the setting and the yeah. time. But I think this, I mean. Yeah, this, yeah. yeah. I just want to make sure there. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like a too off track. No, but I mean, we, we did want to talk about Harlan Potter. And so I yeah. think that's a, that is a good thing to bring up. I think also you, there were, we almost had a transition to like, what what does the difference do? I I think we can talk about Marlowe mm-hmm. as a change, because I think Marlowe from like 1953 to 1973 gets a different vibe. Famously, like Elliot Gould plays this character. Mm-hmm. He's sort of the like the young loser Marlowe, right? Yeah, we talked about like The Big Sleep, the other famous Chandler movie. Um, is Marlowe in that is played by Humphrey Bogart very different vibes between these two guys one is more like americana i'm the good guy i'm the heavy like you can punch me but i'm not going to go down whereas i think gould plays this more like i have two friends and one of them's a cat yeah and the cat leaves like 15 minutes in the movie yeah and my other friend i drove to tijuana and he leaves and i'm like oh shit i don't have any friends yeah you know what i mean yeah um he's unshaven he's disheveled yeah he wears a jc penny tie yeah yeah which i thought was a funny thing and he uh, it's so funny because the, the roger wade character in the movie is like look at that shitty tie yeah and then when he goes into the water to save roger wade from drowning he takes off his tie because he's like oh it's so nice i can't get this tie yeah wet. yeah yeah even though it's I like forgot about that. a shitty tie yeah yeah um but he's this like he doesn't have the authority or power of like a 50s 60s like post-war kind of detective yeah like humphrey bogart he's he's more of a i get like 70s modern like chain smoking yeah i just sort of like float and this is where i wanted to bring up the doc sportello from inherent vice like, i think there's a lot of yes. dna shared between these two guys that are sort yeah. of like their superpower is not their like tough the superpower is not their ability to like dodge blows but it's their ability to take blows but then just like continually get back up and they're just like always around yeah they're always willing to like put themselves in harm's way to find something and they are not the toughest they're not the the scrappiest but they are like they're like cockroaches they're just gonna be there (laughs) after the bomb you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah. and they do it a very like interesting way yeah yeah it's funny you make that connection i um i had i had not thought about inherent advice but i think you're absolutely right with that 
Um, and they do have very similar vibes where they're both a bit quirky. Mm-hmm. Uh, both a bit like, not awkward is a wrong word, but like, um, yeah, I don't know, just quirky, I guess. But um, he's very funny. I yeah, mean, like, very funny. Uh, there's a the, the movie starts with this ten minute scene of him getting cat food for his cat. Yeah, yeah. And one, of the, I've seen this movie twice now, and I didn't pick up on it before. I don't know why, but he when he gets the his cat only eats one brand of cat food, and he goes to the store, and oh, they curries. don't have that brand. Yeah. And so he comes back, takes the new cat food, puts it in an empty Curry's yeah. brand cat food can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Takes it out of the bag, like, oh, you know, I got yeah, your yeah, cat yeah. food, and puts it in the bowl, and the cat's like, no, this is not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just funny. thinking, like, oh, my God, to go to the effort to, like, hide that from your cat. Yeah, like, you know the cat's going to know. Yeah. <laughs> or at least you should. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty. Well, I'm thinking from the different ways. He was like, like, the cat can't read the label yeah like (laughs) he's going through all this effort to like hide it but it's kind of funny yeah 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 he's just like a bit all over the place because his apartment is a bit of a mess Mm -hmm. he has a sick fucking apartment though i'm sure that apartment now is like 10 million (laughs) dollars like it was and it has his own private elevator it has this incredible view of la there's these like um women across the it's not really a hall it's like across the it's like an open air yeah hallway yeah sort of um that are like like your typical like free spirit mm-hmm. um laurel canyon california people. yeah laurel canyon yeah. people who are just like doing that's a daisy jones that daisy jones yeah, is over there <laughs> literally um but yeah yeah no i totally agree with um with that connection but uh yeah it was a, i don't know i don't know he was a really cool character they do, I think they make him more out of place. Like then that's like kind of the yeah. the vibe here. It's mm-hmm. like you look at the goons, they're all clean shaven, they're all like put together, they're all like a certain thing. And yeah. he's like kind of not like anybody else in the entire world. In the entire world of the movie. He's the only one that smokes and all he does is smoke. Yeah. Like he basically has a cigarette in his mouth the whole time. From the the start of the movie to the end of the movie. Yeah. Um and I think this is what caused cigarette ads to die. So like, <laughs> maybe you're like <laughs> good <possible>. lord <laughs> but uh if you're listening to the episode we just brought him back so yeah cigarettes um, are in <laughs> yeah they're back yeah um let's talk about is there anything else you want to mention about marlo i don't think so okay. other than one moment i like and i'll just bring this up really quickly yeah. um when he goes to roger wade's house i think for the first time who's the the writer hemingway ass guy uh yeah. there's a there's a lot about animals in this movie there's like you know he has a cat and the wades have this like really barky dog oh my god so they go there and the dog's barking and then he goes inside and talks to roger Wade, and he's like like uh i'm a dog man are you a dog man and he's like and he's like i have a cat and then roger wade's like ha and then like stops and looks at him like, <laughs> that's, like that's the worst possible thing that's ever been said it was like that's really funny it's like a dog cat yeah, like, yeah. Uh, binary there <laughs> i thought it was pretty good that guy was crazy yeah the guy's fucking nuts yeah um no so i'm good and then for so let's talk about lennox's motivation um that difference yeah so i i think this is an entryway into a larger idea that like the book the screenwriter said that the book was a little too convoluted for for them so they went to pains to kind of like break it apart i think i would probably agree with that but I think Lennox is sort of the end to talking about that. So strap yourself in. Let's talk about some stuff. Seatbelts on. Uh, in the book, Terry Lennox, 
is a fake name and identity yep. created by this guy named Paul Marston, who's a former British soldier who married Eileen Wade mm-hmm. back in the day. Um, and they married while he was serving in the military. Yep. He was presumed killed in Norway. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of it. Years pass. The now Terry Lennox ends up marrying uh, Sylvia Potter. Yeah. Who is the daughter of Harlan Potter, mm-hmm. the, this rich newspaper magnate. Roger Wade has an affair with Sylvia. Yep. And through that affair, Eileen realizes both that her husband is cheating and that Paul is not dead. Yes. And through a fit of jealous rage, she, she kills Sylvia and then goes about to like pick off the other people who could point her out as like the people that could, uh, you know, know that she committed a crime. So she, she kills Roger Wade, her husband. Right. She starts by killing Sylvia, then kills Roger and goes after Marlo. Um, so that's her, that's Eileen Wade's whole vibe. Terry, uh, sorry for the preamble. Terry basically jets after the murder of his wife because he knows he would be framed for all of this. I think, that's true. and I think the connection between him and Eileen while like dormant is, is real. So he's, he's getting out of town. Um, and when he gets out of town, he fakes his own death, but he also changes his appearance through cosmetic surgery. Yes. To become a third version of this person. <laughs> yeah. Paul Marston becomes Terry Lennox becomes like, he's described as like a, a Mexican guy with a totally reconstructed face. Yes. Yeah. So he goes like way off the reservation. Yeah. That's the book. That's a lot. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. In the movie, Terry again leaves like the morning late night after his wife dies. Uh, Again, he goes to Mexico. Again, he's, he's presumed dead. And he's got scratches on his face. He's got scratches on his face. Um, and again, Marlo doesn't buy it, which sets the plot in motion. However, in the movie, things are rearranged. Um, Terry is having an affair with Eileen Wade. Yes. And Terry owes $300,000 to some gangsters. Yes. So his motivation in the movie is basically, I'm killing my wife to get the hell out of Dodge to then hook up with Eileen in Mexico. And Eileen pays his debt for him. Is that what happened? I believe okay. someone pays his debts off. I th- and I'm, I think it's presumed to be her through like Rogers wealth. Okay. okay. That was my take. Okay. But th- I think the important thing here is that in the movie version, they make Terry the bad guy. Yes. Because he, he basically puts Marlo in a really shitty position. And he obviously kills, and, his, kills yeah. his wife. Yeah. It's not good, too. Um, so they, I think they make it much more simple. There's yeah. like, there's The movie starts That's with true. these two guys talking. Mm-hmm. One of the guys is the killer, and the other guy is the yeah. detective. Yeah. And they start as friends, or chums. Chums, yes. Friendly. And then... It's it requires the entire circle of the plot for Marlo to realize what's happening that he's been kind of had by this yeah. guy he thought it was his friend. Yeah. Um, and then to like get come up in. So I f- I feel like what it does is takes it like makes the plot more personal. Yeah. Because in the book, the fact that Eileen Wade is doing all this stuff is sort of like immaterial because his connections to the Wades are is kind of like tertiary. Mm-hmm. Um, Roger Wade's 
we're gonna talk about this right roger wade's like publisher comes through and is like hey can you help roger wade get out of this sober house we need him to write a book yeah um but that's like kind of like a, a god figure coming in and saying like hey do this for us and then yeah, that yeah. connection like starts and develops and he realizes what's going on right. this way at least it's like very central like i already know terry Right. Terry said one thing. I believe Terry. And then the entire plot is him realizing that Terry is a bullshitter. Yeah. And though it was like the one person he thought was like good in this world of bad, it turns out he is also bad in this world of bad. Yeah. And so in that way, it's kind of like depressing for him and his moral compass requires him to go to Mexico. Yeah. And set us right. Anyway. So I don't know. Do you, do you think that like that plot in the book is too convoluted to go to screen? Cause it's a lot of like, yeah, there's a lot going on. T- we, Tangled we web was woven. The, um, I forget the, the Lori or the, um, Loring, the Lorings, like, which is another thing that happens in the book. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah, it is way more complicated in the book. Um, and I think it, I think they both make perfect sense. Like, although I'm thinking about it now, like why does he have, why does Terry Lennox have to kill his and murder his wife to move to Mexico? Like, why can't he just leave? You know what I mean? Like, why does he have to murder her? Yeah. <clears throat> That's like the one thing I guess for me where it's like, that's a little bit under motivated a little bit. Yeah. I mean, maybe there was something that I missed when watching or, that wasn't, you know, maybe she had done, she had did something to him, but like none of that was explained. Cause she's not even in the movie. Yeah. She's not. Right. Yeah. So that's like the one thing for me, that's like a little bit of a stretch, I guess. Um, but I do like the fact that they were, you know, they are, that they are lovers that they, she had also plotted to like, well, it's all, well, it's another thing. It's like, she it, she kind of lucked out with Roger dying. Right. Yeah. Like I was going to bring that out up. With that. Yeah. It's yeah. like she didn't even really plot to kill him. Um, and, he, and she even knew that Terry Lennox killed Sylvia Lennox and she still Wanted moved to, to Mexico with him. Yeah. So now that I'm thinking more about this plot, <laughs> maybe I prefer the book. I like the book. Yeah. I like the book plot. Yeah. Um, but there is a lot going on. Yeah. I, I think the I feel like, I feel like to me the motivation of making it all like personal to Marlo is the impetus behind this because mm. it's like it's a Marlo story yeah it should build out from Marlo yeah versus Marlo gets pulled in right so to me that makes sense but also yeah I mean it's not the first time two people were like cheating on their spouses and would move in together right That's true yeah why do we got to go all this hoopla yeah we're gonna jump through all these hoops <laughs> right. oh we gotta commit murder you gotta kill her before i move to mexico with you yeah but i so well so he's wanted for these deaths so mm-hmm. that's impetus enough to go to mexico but like to kill your wife and go to mexico it feels like yeah it's like i don't know it, well, a little extra right a little extra yeah extra. but you you know people the, like people like death you know audiences yeah. like death yeah like a little, but it also makes him the bad guy. Like clearly the bad guy, even worse than like initially thought. Um, but it, that's withheld though, right? Because we don't know that we he don't is know. the bad guy until. But that, that's what I'm saying. Like at the end, once yeah. you realize it's him, it's like, oh, this guy really deserved it. Yeah. Um, but it, we, I will say the scene at the end where he finds where he's living. He's in a hammock, chilling, chilling. He's and he's like, I had to get out. I had to. 
I owed all this money. Like I had to leave. And he's like, you motherfucking like piece of shit and just shoots him. And then when he's walking away, Eileen is driving up and she's yeah. like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, what's he doing here? And he's playing his little harmonica. Out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just killed your man, bitch. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that was the transition into the ending difference, but yeah. Oh, sorry. He, uh, no, I think <laughs> it's good. Yeah. yeah. In the book, uh, he comes back to the States with the plastic surgery. Yeah. And in the movie, he goes to Mexico and executes him. Yeah. I mean, there's a pretty, he's living it up. I mean. Yeah. So I also wanted to bring up, are these $5,000 bills real? These Madison bills or whatever they're called? Portraits of Madison? I don't know. I, I've i never seen one. <laughs> I we should look this up. They, I, I would imagine that they are real, right? Yeah. Like they, they, I, I did read something about where, like in the, you know, in the probably 16, 17, 1800s that they had extra large bills. Um, but I thought that was a cool little like no to Americana. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, money talks, money talks. And you I got, got the my whole Mexican government to like cover. Yeah. It's like fake as death. Yeah. And it's funny because the uh Marlo got that five thousand from Terry in yeah. the in the bill in the uh, uh or the letter, I guess. And that was essentially what led to his death. Yeah. Well he thought money could solve everything. Yeah, he did. And it turns out he did it for a while. Money more money, more problems. This is what it turns <laughs> out. More money you did. Um Did you so do you what's your preference do you like the fact that he murders him at the end or do you would you prefer like a mm. i mean so they have a conversation then he shoots him and in both cases they have a conversation like yeah. oh you, you 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 really did the number on me and you really made life hard for me yeah and then one he shoots him and the other he's like get maybe we'll see each other again probably not it's funny because i think it's different because um in the book, he changes himself so much to avoid capture, I mm-hmm. guess. But it's it's almost like, you know, you're going way over and beyond. Like, why are you getting cosmetic surgery? Like, yeah, um, it just it just felt like he maybe he had like lost his mind. Um, and that's actually more sad than as, as opposed to somebody who's like living it up in Mexico. You know what I mean? Like mm. I could see where in the book Marla was like had like sympathy for him because like he just like com- I don't know if he completely lost his mind, but seemed to be seemed to be doing that. And then in the in the movie it's like, no, you're getting away with this. You're having a great fucking life and you stole this money and you killed this person and you and you, you think my you're last the girl. month for me has been fucking horrible because yeah. of you. <laughs> like Yeah. Fuck you. So it's like a, it's more, he's interrupting his victory lap in the film. Like Terry Lennox wins in the film until he doesn't. Yeah. Whereas like in the book, it's like, okay, great. It's arguable. I think. Yeah. Like who's winning. Um, so I don't know. It's, I think I like both. It's like the, the movie gives you that, that visual, that like that moment of like the good guy won and everybody feels good at the end. Um, and, uh, and also like a fuck you to Eileen as well. Yeah. So that, that I've, I thought that was great, but there's something about the book that's like a little bit more subtle in the ending. It's a little bit more, it's kind of a shock. It's kind yeah. of a shock. Yeah. 
like I don't want to say ambiguous because it's it's not necessarily ambiguous, but there's more more to dive into. I think. I think it does help that in the book he Terry is not at fault really of anything. Yeah. He just sort of like gets the hell out, waits for the heat to die down, and comes back with a different face. And like that's one way to handle it, I suppose. But it's not like he really did anything wrong that's true and in which in the film they were like no he's the guy that's gonna do the wrong yeah it's almost a sadder ending for him it is kind of sad like he has to leave the country live in a foreign country and change his face to avoid capture of something he didn't do and his face was already disfigured in the army right so it's i guess another through line for him where he's like the man of a million faces that's true that's true actually yeah so huh all right okay I feel like we're at an impasse here. I think I think I'm not both, sure. <laughs> I think both are both have value. Yeah. Um, the movie version feels more like a movie version of like for sure the man behind the gun blows the fucking wrongdoer away, away yeah. right? And the book, it's a little bit more perhaps nuanced. Yeah. And, uh, like metaphorical. Yeah. I probably want to read it again to get like you know get another layer of it. But yeah. Okay. Was the adaptation well, successful? I was going to ask you oh, sorry. real quick. Uh, this doesn't have to do with differences really, but uh-huh. the movie, um, how would you feel about the actors? And maybe I guess we can talk about this later too, but I'm talking about now. Like Elliot Gould. Um, He's, I mean, he was a plus for me. Okay. Yeah. Like I like just, him too. Yeah. Like just the fact that he, um, I don't know. It was just, it just felt so authentic in this like weird quirky character and i think it helps with with Altman the way that he directs him it's like he allows him to act for several minutes Mm -hmm. like you mentioned in the first scene um and he just like mutters the whole time yeah Yeah. and he's like doing all these weird things like it just it was a completely unique character i thought he like obviously brought it to a new level what did you think i liked him a lot yeah um i was gonna say there's there's like interesting casting here too because in addition to elliot gould like jim bowden who's uh, terry lennox is a professional was is a professional baseball player oh really not an actor um eileen wade i think is a model and not an actor and then the dr v is like a comedian or like a comic uh. actor and he's playing like a very serious guy and then Sterling Hayden, who I think is good as like this giant bombastic. Yeah, he was great. Writer. He was great. And he's huge. I mean, he's I think he's, he's like six five. Yeah, and he's this big, like bearded kind of. I mean, I think they're kind of doing the Hemingway. Yeah, they must like, be. idea. Yeah, and even Elliot Gould is tall. I think he's like six three. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, those two, Sterling Hayden and Elliot Gould, really stood out. I think to me, um, I'm trying to give the. For, I forget his name, Mendez or the gangster guy. I forget his mm. his name, but that's in the book. And not yeah, movie. He's something else. Yeah, he um he was okay. He did seem pretty sinister, um, but wasn't like he wasn't a scene stealer for any. If anything, Arnold Schwarzenegger stole the scenes from him <laughs> just by being so fucking buff. But Marty Augustine, Mark okay. Mark Rydell plays Marty Augustine. Okay, who um. And what, what were the other characters you mentioned? So Eileen, yeah, Roger, Marty, Doctor Verringer. He was he was kind yeah. That, of, so that funny. guy is like a comic actor. You probably recognize oh. him. He's a uh, 
He's like in, I think Henry, he's in like Henry Gibson, Wedding Crashers. He's in like co- comedies. He? Yeah, so he's sort of playing against uh, type. And then, yeah, I guess Arnold Schwarzenegger is playing two type. You know, he's just the hood in Augustine's office. Uncredited. That's too bad. I feel like this. This is a David thing Carradine be- was in this. Maybe he was one of the other hoods. Oh my god. Shout out or RIP. Yeah, yeah. I feel like this. Like, I mean, I guess Arnold Schwarzenegger is a very specific looking person and yeah. he would always be notable, yeah. but th- I think because he became so huge. It was cool to see. Yeah. Yo, I wonder if this is one of his first. I think it is. Has to be, right? Yeah. It's pretty good for him to be in a fucking Altman film. <laughs> it's like yeah. one of his first. He doesn't have to talk though. They're just like. Yeah, yeah. He did have one really bad scene where he like, he mistimed his like reaction. Yes. Did you see this? Yes. It was quite comical yeah. it's like awkward yeah <laughs> so clearly he's still he's still learning the, the trade here but no I, love, I thought the acting was awesome um i wonder if i actually didn't mention if this film was nominated for anything i don't know if it was reception i don't think it was actually which feels like it could have had critical reviews rave reviews yeah um, yeah, I don't, I don't think it was nominated for anything. But nonetheless, yeah, not nominated for anything, which is actually kind of sad. Maybe it was a big year. Who knows? Well, now it's on the Little Ones podcast. So you know, <laughs> we, finally people will watch it. We're giving a new life. Yeah, um, I feel like this had like a long life, but maybe not a, a fast life. It's funny. When I actually f- first thought about this film, when you brought it up, I just initially thought that this was going to be like a Humphrey Bogart type. Mm. I did not think it was going to be Robert Altman or... So I actually think I was like pleasantly surprised by this version. It's less it's less like staid and yeah. sort of like old school. It's very... It's new school. Modern. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, the camera moves a lot. The camera like follows people. It pans. It like... Mm-hmm. like two people are talking and it just like focuses on the waves and pushes in on the waves and not on the yeah. the actor speaking um yeah it's definitely yeah. not like a we're on a set you right know right I mean? right um what was i gonna say um what did you think of the modernist architecture in this film loved it yeah it's great i right? love modernism. <laughs> i love modernism uh i didn't really notice the architecture honestly what about the what about the I guess his I guess his apartment is kind of modernist, right? Yeah. It's a little yeah. What about the night shots? Like in the alleyways? Yeah. Those are really cool. Um fuck, there was one shot that I can't remember. It had like the skyline in the background. I don't know. It, whoever the whether it's Robert Altman's credit or the director of cinematography's credit, um, it was like really cool. Because yeah. a lot of this was shot at night. Who was it? Who was it? Just so we, oh my God, Vilmos Sigmund, Z- Sigmund, yeah, shout Vilmos, out the Hungarian American cinematographer, one of the leading figures in the new wave movement. Well, <laughs> I've always been a new wave guy. I know, so that's cool. Um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful movie. Yeah. Oh well, he did Close Encounters of the Third Kind and The Deer Hunter. So, so this is his minor work. Minor work. <laughs> I love that term. So, Eric, was the adaptation successful? That's an interesting question because 
like the director basically was like to hell with you if you liked the Chandler book. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't know. I don't have a really close relationship to the Chandler book to be offended. I frankly like I don't know that I would get offended by a lot of adaptations. I don't think I have a hardcore like feeling towards any book in that way. Well, I guess like the Harry Potters back in the day would have been one of those things. Yeah, I mean that would have been if they'd went in a totally different direction or if they just like changed a bunch of stuff. Yeah. That probably would have been would not have gone down well probably. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like I was a writer and somebody just took my book and said, "Here's $5,000." go away yeah I mean, now we're gonna and like do our own thing it would be i don't know be like kind of weird and sad but also you got paid and also it really doesn't matter what happens in the movie i think people are smart enough to know that the things are different yeah and it's you know all press is good press that's true so that's true baby um <laughs> anyway uh i feel like this is a good adaptation not a great adaptation. Yeah. I, f- I feel like, I mean, obviously the movie is good and I think the book is good. And the fact that they're both good makes it good. Yeah. But I think if, I do think if you're probably a fan of this book, you're a little sad. There were no gimlets. Like that's a thing. That's a big that's miss. True. But maybe they weren't drinking gimlets in the seventies. And so it just had to be totally, totally updated. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know. It's interesting. It's, it's like they didn't even, they didn't want to do the setting. The setting is kind of a big piece of it. They threw away all the dialogue, but they do still keep the vibe of the dialogue, which is like the yeah. rat I'm smart. Mm-hmm. I got a smart mouth. You're not laughing. I'm a clown, huh? Right. Funny like a clown. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't really have like a... I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. Do you have a thought? Do you have an opinion? Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, it was in a it, it was a successful adaptation. Um so I'm just writing in my hot takes and final thoughts here, but I think it's like successful because they're both good. Yeah. Or successful because it was a good translation. <clears throat> I guess good. we never define this, you know. It's yeah, it's hard it's hard it's different, right? It's like it it's cuz you have to sort of take account of the source material and then the intentions or the decisions of the director. And you can't just say, because it wasn't a direct translation of the book, that it was a failed adaptation. It's more nuanced. It's more like, did it have the same themes? Did it, uh, was it still quality work? Was it, did it have the same vibes? Did it have the same, you know, general things that people enjoyed about the novel that people would hopefully enjoy about the film. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think like just because they changed the structure of the story and a lot of the things that went behind the scenes and motivations of characters doesn't mean that it was bad or it doesn't mean that they weren't, they didn't like hit the, the vibes of the story or I keep saying vibes, but it's, it's not vibes. It's like, um, tone, tone of the story. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, so that's kind of my thoughts. Like, <clears throat> I think they definitely hit the nail on the head with the tone. Um, and, and it's actually more impressive that they did that in a new decade. 
right it's harder it's probably it's got to be harder because you throw away the entire thing you have and yeah picking it picking it up anew start new so i would definitely say it's successful um i mean if you make a successful film a great film like this based on source material like it's probably going to be a success for me um yeah you know what i mean like good. that's kind of the objective is like to just make a great movie and have it at least pay some homage to the to the source material i guess it's a high degree of difficulty because they basically decided we're keeping the character and we're basically up we will negotiate everything else yeah everything else can be new and mm-hmm. it cannot be new yeah and they're basically like okay don't care yeah yeah so there, it's you're sort of rebuilding on the fly yeah a whole story that's like kind of related and kind of not related yeah so it, you know instead of having the crutch of like the dialogue exists people like it we can reuse it they're like let's just do our own thing right so yeah and i think a lot of ways that helps like it helps because there's just two completely different mediums like it just helps free up the director and the and the the team making the film because like i'm sure it's difficult to do certain things in the book a certain way that's probably why like these harry potters and lord of the rings if you want to do super faithful adaptations like that you have to get a lot of things right and you have to do a lot of things specific ways in order to tell the story the same way. So it's probably more expensive that way. Um, but this way you got more freedom. Yeah. Yeah, It's cheaper. Yeah. That's true. You get cheapies. Um, okay. Did we like it? I, I think we liked the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Hot takes. I'm going to take up smoking. What about like Zins? Just like straight no, cigarettes? No, no, no. Yeah, just straight cigs. Okay. You haven't already? <laughs> no, but I'm going to go buy a pack right okay. now. <laughs> Marble Rats. Do you want some? No, I'm good. Okay. I think they would make my like head, like give me lightheaded. Probably. Yeah, make maybe. me lightheaded. Yeah. What's yours? Um, there's a scene in this movie where he like runs down the street to try to catch Eileen Wade who's driving. And th- this man, his lungs oh, are yeah, diseased yeah. Oh yeah, I got with the amount of cigarettes he smokes. Like there's no way he can run for an extended period of time without like That's true. dying. That's true. But I, you know, we, they're built different back then, right? Well, that's true too. Everyone was built different. Yeah. Nobody complained. Yeah. Fucking Gen Z. These people lived like crazy and then they lived to be like 85, 80, yeah. 89. 95 like great like just, he was smoking these are probably actually all real cigarettes oh for sure and it's a movie so he's like doing a bunch of takes oh man he probably, so, i wonder how many cigarettes he smoked it's like <clears throat> it's vile to yeah. think about yeah anyway anyway uh move your book i said book i'm a movie yeah I like this little disagreement yeah i think they're i think they're both really good yeah, it's like a, it's more of a toss-up, I think. I appreciated reading the book the second time. I think knowing the outcome helped sort of uncover a bit of the like mystery while I was reading it, where mm-hmm. I could appreciate things more, whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So um, I would recommend both. Me too. Uh, final thoughts? <laughs> I'm going to take up smoking. We're <laughs> <laughs> the same thing for both. So I'm concerned. I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, I had this written before we we watched this YouTube video, but the um, <laughs> different ways L.A. Gould strikes a match to light a cigarette in this yeah. movie is, is pretty hysterical. There's a supercut of it on YouTube if for people interested. 
Um, it's like off of the ground, off of like plate glass windows in a grocery store, off of a like mesh screen. Yeah. On a window. Bar countertop. Bar countertop. I think his his wall in his apartment. Yeah. yeah. The door frame in someone else's apartment. It's crazy. It's wild. Yeah. I, I I didn't notice it at first when I was watching, but having the supercut is like, oh wow. My yeah. God. He's quite talented. That is a ta- that is very talented. I, yeah. I feel like that got lost. Like no one talks about that. We should talk about that. Yeah, we should talk about that. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, yeah. Um, well, cool. Thank you for listening. If you made it this far, um, we are going to sign off here. And um, if you haven't already listened, um, please check out our most recent episode on Silo. Um, that is the Apple TV adaptation of the Hugh Howey novel. Um, well, um, and then keep an eye out for our next episodes. Um, so we're doing Foe, which is a Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mescal. And who is the director? I can't remember if it's somebody, uh, famous or not. Garth Edwards, Gareth Edwards, something like that. So that is a, so we're going to start our Oscar bait season here. So Foe, so two, you know, Paul Mescal and Saoirse Ronan both nominated. Has Saoirse won? No, she's been nominated like five times though. Right. Something crazy. Yeah. Um, so they're coming out with a sci-fi sort of uh, drama. Uh, so Romance, we're gonna, love story. Love story. Maybe. And uh, we're going to read the book. It's by Ian Reed. So if you want to check that out, please do. Uh, we're going to do that episode um, early to mid-October. Um, what's that, August again? And then we're going to do <laughs> Killers of the Flower Moon at the end of October, uh, which is the the big dick uh, Leo DiCaprio, Robert De- Robert De Niro, uh, Martin Scorsese, Lily Gladstone, um, adaptation of the David Grand novel of the same name. Mm-hmm. So that should be really cool. Um, excited for both of those. Do we want to make any more? Do we want to announce more? I don't know because of the strike. I'm a little. Mm, that's true. Let me keep it close to the chest, and then yeah, when, yeah. it's a need to know basis. And yeah, I mean that's fair. Who needs to know? They we'll, they got we'll, to. We'll probably have yeah more updates with uh in the next episode. Yeah, hopefully we get this writer strike fucking. Resolve. We couldn't get any of our normal interviewees, yeah, on the show. Like it's we were gonna, cool. we were gonna get you know Emma Stone and Leo and Leo can't promote. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so so it's affecting our bottom line. Emma Stone, if you're listening, please come. come please come. <laughs> um, cool. Any shout outs? Yeah, Emma Stone. Emma Stone. Yeah, please, please come. And David Grant. I've I'm almost done reading Colors of the Flower Moon. It's, it's oh, good. really? Oh, pretty good. Is it? Yeah. Okay. We should we should uh, email him. Send him a little email. David.grant at thenewyorker.com. Yeah. I don't know if that's it. But. <laughs> it probably is. Um, well, cool. Thank you guys for listening. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything else to say other than, you know, have a good rest of your day and enjoy August. <laughs> enjoy August. Thank you. <laughs>